Welcome to China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. The flag of China flutters above the entrances to many of the world's smartest hotels. It's often hoisted up alongside the stars and stripes as a sign of welcome to international visitors. The fluttering flags suggest international respect towards China, a nation which proudly regards itself on a par with America as a world leader. Yet when the People's Republic was initially forged through revolution, the outside world was aghast, and it took many years before China's communist government was accepted at the United Nations. Nowadays, China plays a key role in many international institutions, including the UN, and has diplomatic relations with all the liberal democracies. So what has led to this profound change in attitudes towards China? And how does the Communist Party seek to present itself as the legitimate leader of the nation? I'm pleased to welcome back to the podcast an expert who's given the issue of the legitimacy of China's communist government considerable thought. He's Dr. Mark Clifford, an author and former editor of the South China Morning Post and Standard Newspapers. Mark, you're also a historian, and I'm incredibly impressed that you went back to the University of Hong Kong to take a PhD in history. So here's a question from history. In 1971, the UN recognized the People's Republic of China as the only legitimate representative of China to the UN. Why was the word legitimate used at that time? Well, China was, uh, in, in a way, still is fighting a, a civil war. Or I should say the China itself is still undergoing uh, the divisions that are resulting from a civil war. For decades, the nationalists, the Kuomintang, KMT, we usually call them in English, fought with the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, against all odds, the Chinese Communist Party triumphed in 1949 and drove the, the nationalists, the KMT, off of the mainland to the island of Taiwan, which uh, had been a Japanese colony for decades before that. And so there's still this question of legitimacy. Who represents China? Is it the Chinese Communist Party or is it the KMT dominated or was KMT dominated uh, Taiwan, which is now, of course, uh, run by a democratically elected government? In your recent book, Today, Hong Kong, Tomorrow, the World, you tell the story of a protester who in 2019 went into a government building and approached a sign which read Hong Kong People's Republic of China. And she then used black paint to blot out the reference to the PRC. That sounds like a direct challenge to the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. Well, I think the demonstrators in Hong Kong in 2019 were challenging the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party. There was the protester you mentioned in uh, the city hall, the legislative council, uh, as it's called. We don't know if it was a man or a woman because the protester was uh, was masked, but many of those protesters uh, were women. So it's interesting uh, fact of 2019. So you had this whole coterie of young men and women many of whom were born right around the time of the 1997 handover when Hong Kong went from being a British colony to China. And although they grew up in a post-colonial environment, 
they do not, did not, do not recognize the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party to interfere in the affairs of Hong Kong. And in fact, many of them go further and advocated independence for Hong Kong. And this was uh, regarded as a frontal challenge to the authority of the Chinese Communist Party. Now, an aspect of Chinese life which puzzles me is the enthusiasm of the Chinese Communist Party to hold ballots. For example, some people voted for John Lee to be the new chief executive of Hong Kong. And when party officials gather for the so-called two sessions meeting in Beijing each year, they vote on policy. How do you interpret those events? Well, one of the uh, curious features of modern dictatorships is that they like to pretend that they have the, the, that they're channeling the aspirations of the people, that they are every bit as legitimate as a democratically elected government. So to do that, they need to stage fake elections. You mentioned John Lee, who's now the mayor of Hong Kong. His official title is the chief executive. Out of a city of seven and a half million people, a city that was promised that everyone would have the right to vote for the mayor, under Chinese rule, only a, a little over the, a thousand people were, were eligible to vote for John Lee. And it wasn't just that some people voted for John Lee, everyone except one person voted for John Lee. That sounds more like North Korea than it does like an open, modern, prosperous city as Hong Kong used to be. But if everyone except one person voted for John Lee, what was the point in having an election? What was it supposed to signal? Elections signal legitimacy. and. The last couple hundred years, as we've moved away from monarchies and the right of divine rule, uh, no matter how authoritarian the government, they want to show that they're channeling the aspirations of the mass of people. So they want to claim that they represent people, even if they're unwilling to really fight it out in the anonymity of a secret ballot box. Well, let's talk about the legitimacy of China's leader. At the meeting of the party congress later on this year, members will elect the Central Committee, which in turn will approve the members of the Political Bureau and its Standing Committee. Xi Jinping will probably be re-elected as the General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party. All of this gives the impression that China is using ballots to pick a leader based on the will of the people. I don't think anyone outside of China is fooled by this charade. Uh, China is not using fair, competitive electoral methods. But Xi Jinping wants to believe himself and wants the people in China to believe that he is their democratically chosen leader. Of course, when you have a Chinese Communist Party that's dominated by one person who picks all the people below him, he's essentially picking the very people who, who will vote for him and whose jobs depend on his continued patronage. I keep quite a close watch on the Chinese media, on the English language websites, and it's absolutely clear they take a pretty dim view of elections and democracy in other countries. There are many stories about the problems facing presidents and prime ministers who run chaotic governments or lead divided societies. It seems as though China's Communist Party somehow draws succor from the failings of its rivals. Absolutely. The, um, the kind of difficulties, the economic and political and social, that uh, open pluralistic societies have undergone, particularly since the 2008-2009 global financial crisis, have emboldened China to act uh, more autocratically, 
more aggressively, both internally and and externally. And uh, I think that the especially the economic uh, failings around 2008-09 uh, convinced the Chinese that the the Western um, economy and the system was was decadent. The January and and on its way down, and that China needed to act more assertively to grab the lead role on the world stage. Yes, I've heard that word decadent used to describe the West actually by people in China a lot. And it does get picked up by critics of governments in other countries too. But another way in which the Chinese Communist Party seeks legitimacy is by hailing its success in terms of economics. And there are a couple of oft-repeated claims. Firstly, the CCP has lifted 600 million people out of poverty. And secondly, it's overseen a prolonged period of unprecedented economic growth. But as we've heard recently, that growth period is over. The economy is faltering badly. Does that undermine the CPP's legitimacy? Well, I think that the slowing economic growth is certainly going to cause uh, a, a different set of problems than, than the party has faced over the last few decades. China's growth has been extraordinary. We have never and we never will see anything like this in the world. 600 million people, 800 million people. Uh, you know, even, we don't even know the number of people who've been pulled out of grinding absolute poverty to at least some level of, of you know, subsistence existence. But other Asian countries have done something similar. Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand. China's scale is uh, unmatched, but its growth model is a well-worn um, pattern. And it's, uh, it's not to take anything away from the Chinese. They did it. They wasted a few decades under Mao when they were too caught up in internal political struggles uh, and, and in famines and other uh, you know, horrific events. So they wasted a few decades. So the catch up was that much more dramatic, that much quicker. But as with these other East Asian countries that I mentioned, um, the combination of um, the fact that they've already caught up a lot and the fact that uh, the demography uh, is working against them. The one-child policy means there are a lot fewer workers coming into the workforce, and China is going to get old before it gets rich. So is slowing economic growth going to fatally undercut the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party? I think that's something we have to watch very closely. I actually think that it's not going to be as damaging as many people do. Yes, the party rose on the strength of its um, economic growth, but I don't think it's going to fall if growth slows. Chinese people have been through too much. They've been through so much worse. Even a contraction of a couple percentage points in the economy is nothing compared to famines that killed tens of millions of people. I mean, something like 40 million people died during the so-called Great Leap Forward that starved the country. So, you know, a little bit of economic contraction is nothing compared to what China's been through. Still, um, the combination of really high debts, uh, a lot of people losing money in, in their main assets, their, their property, their apartments, it's going to be challenging for the CCP. I don't think it's an existential threat. Right, but I wonder what will be the impact on the reputation of the CCP of the slowdown in growth post-COVID? Because from a domestic point of view, there's bound to be a lot of frustration. I expect you've been picking that up from Hong Kong. Do you think COVID struck a real blow to the PRC? 
I think that COVID in, and the restrictions around it and the, I would say, misguided zero COVID policy are a bigger threat than a slowing economy. The restrictions have been put on people, the, the off, on again, lockdowns, partial lockdowns, erratic lockdowns, you know, the fact that people are sometimes just yanked out of their apartment and thrown into quarantine centers, families are separated, parents are separated from their children. This is even happening in the wealthiest cities in China, notably Shanghai, where, uh, as one friend said to me, we're, uh, we're a city of people with IQs of 160. Unfortunately, we're being ruled by people with IQs of 80. And that's pretty much how they think of the government officials who are carrying these, this policy that comes from the top, that comes from Xi Jinping, that seems completely misguided and at odds with the actual disease itself. Uh, feel about the situation. So I think the combination of the frustrations of this zero COVID policy and a slowing economy could be quite dangerous for the CCP. From an international perspective, there's long been a hope that China would become more democratic as it grew wealthier. Reading your book, though, I was struck that the liberal values in Hong Kong were eroded during a period when the economy was strong. It wasn't that people rose up in revolt against their leaders during a recession, was it? Revolutions often happen when uh, expectations uh, are um, going down, whether it's economically or in the case of Hong Kong, politically. So people had high expectations of an ever freer society in Hong Kong. They were promised that they'd have the right to vote for their mayor and their city council. And instead, the Chinese Communist Party was dialing things back and uh, imposing more and more political control, even repression. So I think that uh, in Hong Kong uh, led essentially to revolt. Will we see something uh, similar in China? I don't see it immediately in the cards. I think we'll see lots of, um, we will continue to see localized outbursts and protests, but the CCP has been pretty uh, efficient and ruthless even about keeping a lid on, on, on local protests, um, often a combination, a very skillful combination of carrots and sticks. Now, the question is how long can this go on and how long can an autocratic uh, top-down regime continue to be a uh, more and more important player uh, technologically and in terms of R&D, in terms of value added in the world economy? And I think the jury's really out on that. Mark, thank you for your very astute answers to those questions. That was Mark Clifford, author of Today Hong Kong, Tomorrow the World, published by the History Press. This podcast is made by the SOAS China Institute, part of the University of London. And you can find out more about our courses and research at soas.ac.uk. But for now, that's all from us here at the China in Context podcast team.